Mendaxitin by Bibi Berkey. If I could think of love, I'd think of you. Your arms uplifted, tying your hair in plaits above. The lyre shape of your arms and shoulders, the soft curve of your winding head. No melody is sweeter, nor could Orpheus so have bewitched. I think of this, and all my universe becomes perfection. But were you in my arms, dear love, the happiness would take my breath away. No thought could match that ecstasy, no song encompass it, no other worlds. If I should think of love, I'd think of you. The consulting room was at least three times bigger than the GP's office she normally attended, and the desk, which dominated a good third of it, put her in mind of those pictures of Mussolini's palace. Except the consultant behind the desk was nothing like a dictator, or indeed her normal GP. He was small and slightly pot-bellied, and with a neat carpet of grey beard that swathed half his face. Grey eyes lingered beneath grey brows. So, this was private practice, she mused. This was where all the wealth was hidden. It didn't even look medical. No packaged instruments lying on the side ready for insertion. No bin for contaminated articles, no wall charts, not even a computer. Instead, there was an old-fashioned blotter on the desk with an antique brass roller and an exquisite silver fountain pen. You did very well to find me, he told her. You were mentioned in two articles, she replied. Fortunately, your name is very distinctive. Sabre. I guess you were in Harley Street when they said you were private. He was round about her age, late fifties, but that was all she assumed they had in common. Her world was one of drab, terrace, house, muddle, noise and family. His, silent. His suit, she guessed, would have cost him a similar sum to their car. I don't want to waste any of your time, she began. He raised a hand to cut her off and to save either of them any more awkwardness. Don't worry. I have what you want. It's in a refrigerator in the next room. She produced a smile of grateful relief, and he acknowledged it with a quick bob of a nod. I hold the only stock of Mendaxedin in the country. It isn't licensed for general use yet. You do know that. I do, she told him, and sat forward in her chair. But it's absolutely our last chance. We've tried everything else. Without it, my husband will... Well, he'll wither. Wither? What an absurdly delicate approach to death. And yet she couldn't have been so faint-hearted because here she was asking him to administer an illegal drug still untested in this country, on the basis of an article she read. "'You've seen my husband's notes,' she checked. "'You know his condition. Will Mendaxedin work on him?' "'Oh, it'll work. No question. It's an extraordinary breakthrough. Nothing like it has ever been seen before. 
She straightened and pointed her chin at him in proud defiance. If you're worried about money, you needn't be. I've sold stuff, big stuff, but it can all go. None of it matters. I'll sell the house if I need to. There won't be any need for that, he smiled. Though he didn't feel sure he was doing it convincingly, and lifted his fingers to his mouth to trace the unnatural bend of his lips. Your husband is very ill, he went on. You may have to accept, and I'm sorry to raise it, that you could lose him. She was struggling now, biting a lip one minute, frowning the next. Suddenly she fixed him in her gaze. I don't know what you know about love, Mr. Sabre. It comes in many forms, I suppose. But the form I know is more than simple fondness. The kind of love I know is, and she laughed to reflect on it, <laughs> it's a bit of a disaster waiting to happen, because it's so much a part of my life that without it my world simply ceases. My husband and I have been together for forty years. We were young when we met, just normal. Two people who fancied each other. We travelled along together, having children, then losing them to the bigger world, finding solace in each other. I know what he thinks, because he thinks what I think. Uh, it must sound stifling to you, but that's just the way it is. We knew a final separation would come, but I am not at that point yet. Not while you hold the key to his recovery. And you've never argued? Never wished you were apart? he asked. It's funny, she reflected. You wonder all along how deep it goes. There have been times when one of us has irritated the other, and then it's so quick, the tumble into hate. But this is the point. It's temporary. And before you know it, you're back to where you were, existing as one again. Her speech over, she blushed and turned her attention to her shoes. The doctor watched her across the expanse of his desk, his eyes narrow, his heart beating as fast as hers, and he thought, Do you really not remember me, Flora? In the final year of university, all the relationships shifted around. In the first year, they had been newly released schoolchildren, still talking the language of crushes and obsession. Three years down the line, having had enough sex to know what to expect, they began to loosen their hold on each other and look beyond. Everyone was excited about the unknown, except Flora and Jeremy. They had sat beside each other in a lecture once, strangers until that point, and found themselves laughing at a weak joke, and that spark had been enough. What they had at first considered a lucky encounter was, as Jeremy later suggested, a kind of biological imperative. Scientific forces had drawn them together. It made sense. They were both fit, attractive young people. Nature had made sure that their magnetic poles were all arranged the right way. Jeremy moved into Flora's student flat. Her flatmate eventually moving out to make way for a couple very evidently in love. But standing outside the lecture hall the day that Flora and Jeremy had met, and waiting for Flora to emerge, was Conrad. He too had been drawn towards a lively nineteen-year-old young woman. 
It had been in the college dining hall a few days earlier, and the second-year medical student had taken the vacant seat opposite Flora in his rush to eat and go back to his studies. But he found to his surprise that he couldn't swallow. His throat constricted and his stomach folded in on itself. He was stupefied by the glow coming off the warm, freckled face in the candlelight, by the hypnotic swing of the thick, auburn hair. She was holding a very animated conversation with her friends, and he shuddered when she laughed, and when she was silent, he caught his breath and waited. And when she rose to follow her friends out, he had risen at once and said, Hi, I'm Conrad. Shall we go for a walk? Hi, Conrad, she had replied. Okay. But she simply got up and left the dining hall and never looked back. And Conrad Saber had let her off because he'd made the offer of a walk very clumsily, if not a little creepily, and far too unspecifically. Can you fall in love that easily? he asked himself, and decided that, yes, you could. And just like Jeremy, he took it to be hard, scientific fact. This was biological rightness, and it would be wasteful to pass up such consummate compatibility. He watched her, followed her, tried sometimes to catch her eye, but her eye wasn't up for catching. When he saw her with that wet, artsy waste of space, Jeremy known, he was incensed. Conrad Saber, Jeremy Nolan. Even the name should tell that girl who was the superior choice, the manlier option, the better mate. Their relationship will fail, he told himself. And I'll just wait until it does. Waiting became the professional making of him. He pinned his attention to his education and then to his career. The vision of her never changed. The freshness, the lightness, the freckles, the thick hair. You can while away a life waiting if you have enough to occupy yourself in the meantime. He knew where she lived, knew about her job, the children, the dingy house. But it was a habit by then, the waiting. And soon, comically soon, nearly forty years had passed, and just as the tragedy of his obsession became increasingly clear to him, he received an email from Mrs. Flora Noland, who was beside herself with worry over her husband and had heard about a drug that was said to be very effective in treating his condition and about the wonderful consultant who was hoping to save lives with it one day. I have every confidence Mendaxitin will reverse your husband's symptoms. But we will need to keep this quiet, of course. Of course, she replied at once. And if you want to be paid now up front, I, 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 can, I can do that. I've, I've got the money. He'd come across this many times before. Patients assuming that all he cared about was the finances. What a venal view they had of private practice. You don't need to pay me a penny he told her, and enjoyed the sudden frown from those pale brows. He found he was just as happy to watch her agile features now as he had then, when she had illuminated that dim dining hall. Of course I must pay you, she insisted. No, I just want you to do something for me. It's very straightforward. We must bring him here because the mendaxidin must be administered by drip, he can stay overnight, free of charge. Really, I insist. 
Then we'll monitor him for 24 hours to see how he responds. We have several rooms here set up for overnight patient care. I, I, I don't understand, she faltered. Please, just let me pay you for all this. Are we guinea pigs? Is that it? Is the drug not safe and you're worried we'll sue? <laughs> not at all. It's used widely and successfully in the States and Australia with no recorded side effects. Then what is it? she persisted. Are you doing this out of charity? He looked away as he spoke. All I ask is that before we give him the mendaxotin, you tell him categorically that you have been unfaithful to him and that you've done it all the time you've been together. Jeremy had been reading, and the book had fallen to the floor. When Flora came home and saw him, her heart suddenly faltered, and she thought, oh my God, he's already gone. And although the idea was shocking, it came with a hint of relief. He woke and opened his eyes and reached out a hand and said very creakily, Where have you, you been, Flo? To save your life, she thought. But to save your life, I will have to damage the rest of our lives. She decided then, looking down at him, that she couldn't do it. The whole thing was ludicrous. What was driving this vile doctor? If only he wasn't so frail, she'd take Jeremy to America and get him treated there. But it was a question of time as well. When Flora had been little, she'd been given a kitten a tiny tabby taken too early from its mother, and it had contracted some fatal illness before she even knew what was happening. She'd nursed it, desperate somehow to revive it, but watched with fascination at the same time the process of morbidity, the passing from one state to another. The eyes sank, the skin thinned, any movement became impossible. Taking a breath was staggeringly hard. It reached a stage where there was no turning back. What she feared most now was that Jeremy would reach that stage, and it would be too late, and no drug could bring him back. He was only 58 years old. This was not the time to lose him. We love each other, don't we? She told him playfully. Like no two people have ever loved each other. My own girl, he said and the physical discomfort of having to rouse himself and play with her was so evident that she knew she had no choice. The clinic sorted out a private ambulance which collected Jeremy Nolan from the unkempt terrace house in its South London suburb, Flora rode with him into the centre of town and stayed beside him as they wheeled him inside and up the lift and into his room and finally nudged him respectively onto a bed made up of pink floral sheets, laundered pale. Flora reassured her husband that everything was fine and then went to look for Dr Conrad Sabre in his office. This is ridiculous, she told him. After you've given him the medicine and he's well, what, what's to stop me telling him that it was all a lie? 
that you made me do it. Dr. Saber shrugged. You can tell him what you like when he's well. I just want to see his face when you tell him. Why? she demanded, aghast. Why would you want that? But he turned away from her and went to find the nurse and arrange the necessary schedules for the medicine's administration. She came to him again, just moments before the first dose was due to be added to Jeremy's drip. You're a doctor. What pleasure can you get from seeing someone's heart break? He answered her at once, and she heard a little savagery in his voice. Why should you care about how I feel? This is about your husband, a dying man. Have you even considered the idea yet that you might lose him? No, she said, and her face fell, creating deep, life-scored lines that he never let himself notice. No, I haven't. I can't let him go. I told you that. Then go and talk to him now, and I will watch on the monitor. And the second it's done to my satisfaction, I will bring in the mendaxidin and will start the process of his recovery. Flora entered the room where her husband lay on the regulation hospital bed. The backrest had been slightly raised, and his weary eyes followed her approach. He tried to lift a hand, but it only hovered an inch or so off the sheet before dropping back down. I love you, she cried out at once, and looked about her in panic for the camera. Had she gone too far in expressing herself, and angered the doctor who was even now putting the mandaxitin back in the fridge? She sat down beside her husband and grasped his hand. His piebald eyebrows fell like curtains over eyes that even now managed to emit their customary warmth and affection. Are you listening, my love? she asked him. Will you listen if I just prattle on? Of course, he told her. I love to listen to you. The doctor is bringing the mendaxidin. It'll be here any second now. She felt a grateful pressure on her hand from his fingers. I love you, she blurted out once more, and again she peered around her, looking for signs of repercussions. He managed a little laugh. <laughs> Wouldn't say no to that wonder drug now he said very quietly. And so they had to move on, all of them, before it was too late and he had crossed over to that point of no return. I want to say something quickly. Please, just close your eyes. Don't look at me. I don't know how to tell you this, but I have to. And I have to do it now, perverse as it sounds. My love, my greatest, dearest love, I have been unfaithful to you. I've slept with other men. She swallowed deeply, her voice stuck inside her, refusing to come out. But it had to, just once more. And I've done it repeatedly throughout our marriage. A moment of silence. And then there was that little constraint of his fingers again, that reassuring, that forgiving squeeze. Could it be that he was too far gone to grasp what she'd just said? He opened his eyes. I understand, he said vaguely, his voice minuscule. He was sapped of all energy now. She had done the sapping. I'm so sorry, she whispered. You're only human. You have needs. I, I can't supply all those needs. 
She hated any talk of needs. Always had. She didn't have any needs. Or if she did, he saw to them perfectly adequately. The most perfect of relationships needs help from other sources. That's nature. It's biology. I'm no different, my darling. She craved to understand. Didn't trust her hearing, given how faint he was now. W what are you saying, my love? she asked, tilting further towards him. I'm telling you, you mustn't feel guilty or suffer. I've done the same. I've done it all the time we were together. You've had affairs? <laughs> Many. But I thank you from the bottom of my heart for telling me about yours. Now my conscience is a little clearer. How many? God, where do I begin? That depth of love, that endless love, it ends. It ends very suddenly. She'd always known it could. She stood and looked down on him, biting her lip, waiting for him to wink or tell her he was joking. Instead, plastered to his pale face was what seemed to her like a huge, smug grin. She left the room at once and made her way up the corridor to Mr. Conrad Saber's consulting room. He was standing by his desk, his face distorted with surprise. I've got the medicine here, he told her. It seemed to her like he was convulsed with the profoundest pity, yet she presumed it was for her. Put the mendaxidin back in the fridge, Laura told the doctor. I'm taking my husband home to die. Mendaxitin was written by Bibby Berkey and read by Mark Sangster. Studio production was by Mark Lingwood. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions. If I could think of love, I'd think of you. Your arms uplifted, tying your hair in plaits above. The lyre shape of your arms and shoulders, the soft curve of your winding head. No melody is sweeter, nor could Orpheus so have bewitched. I think of this, and all my universe becomes perfection. But were you in my arms? The happiness would take my breath away. No thought could match that ecstasy. No song encompass it. No other worlds. If I should think of love, I'd think of you. Thank you.
And now a word from our sponsor, which is us, Tempest Productions. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make more, then why not buy us a coffee via Kofi? That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tempest Productions. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tempest Productions. Thank you so much for your support.